Hello, dear listeners. Thanks for tuning into this latest episode of Love Service Wisdom with Marissa Rada, myself. I'm here this week to give you a podcast that's a conversation with a true Renaissance man, Jamie Cato. He is a filmmaker, a musician, a writer, a coach, a workshop guide, a father. And I met him recently. It was early September at the Vancouver International Film Festival. And for me, he felt like one of those uh, folks that you meet that remind you of other people that you know, so you instantly like him. He was a combination of an old friend, an artist from New York City, Michael Robinson, and the artist Day of Morning Altars. And it was like, if Day and Michael were one person, it would be Jamie. And when we had lunch, or not lunch, brunch with him the next day, it even affirmed that even more. He was a really brilliant man who has a lot of depth and a lot of character and a lot of insights, lots of uh, experience, personal experience that he's teaching and living from, and also has this kind of like rebel renegade underlying his energy too, which I like a lot. And, uh, Yeah, so we were there for his film that he created in partnership with the Love, Serve, Remember Foundation and the Google Empathy Lab, which is, of course, is about Ramdas, his life and his teachings uh, and a lot of um, footage of Ramdas through the years told in a way that the story is one of becoming human, becoming in, coming into form, coming into this idea of somebody in a society. And then the spiritual journey, which is more about becoming nobody or nothing. And it the, the documentary is put together in such a way that I felt like it was really accessible to those who aren't maybe that versed or familiar yet with the spiritual journey. Maybe they're not even quite consciously on one on their in their own life but if they are curious about it which i feel like in my opinion most humans all of us have this inner inkling this quiet voice inside sometimes really loud voice inside that's urging us into a spiritual practice or spiritual journey and so if that voice is there present but you're not quite on the path and you watch this film, my hope is that it would be a really wonderful source of inspiration for you to begin and what the journey is about. And also, one of the reasons I love Ram Dass so much is because he's such a fantastic storyteller and he talks about his own life. And as a teacher, he can help you feel like, oh, here's a man who's just a man who who embarked on his inner quest and he's kind of gotten there. And so maybe I can too. He's an example of, of, of a, of a true guru, which is someone who can help you see that own light within your own self, that you are it and he is it and he's an example of it. And then you could be too. So the film is just spectacular. Again, it's called Becoming Nobody and it's being screened across the US. And I think they're just beginning to open it now to have private screenings. So if you're interested in seeing it or bringing it to your town, it's becomingnobody.com. And you can learn more about Jamie at Jamie Cato, Cato, jamiecato.com. See A-T-T-O is his last name. So so it's a delight to have this conversation with Jamie. And myself, I'm just about to head to China tomorrow with uh, East Forest. We're going over there together for a festival called the At One Wellness Festival. I'll be teaching yoga. He's going to be performing. We'll do some of that together. And we'll be in Shanghai for about a week. And I kind of have no idea what to expect. It's my first time over to Asia which seems crazy to me that I haven't done that yet in my life and I'm 40. The only other time I've sort of done it is when I was in Turkey and there's a bridge in Istanbul that goes from Europe over to Asia and we went across the bridge. So technically there was that experience, but it felt like still Turkey because I was in Turkey. So my first Asia experience is coming up just this week. Wish me luck. Uh, and I'll, I can't wait to tell you all about it when I get back in the next podcast. But for now, enjoy this really wonderful, delightful conversation with Jamie Cato.
Hi, Jamie. Thanks for joining me today on this podcast. Really Wonderful. delighted that we've been able to make this time to connect. Yeah, really nice. And you're in New York City right now, right? Yeah, on the final leg of the Becoming Nobody movie tour. Did you have a screening there recently? Yeah, they've been going on all the time. In fact, they're just opening in all new cinemas as well, thankfully. Um, but the, my, the ones where I'm showing up being charming are Friday, Saturday and Sunday at the Rubin Art Centre. And that's coming up this weekend. Yeah. Exactly. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Yep. Different Q&As. And so I've had that question. People have said, when or where can I see it? And you said it's just about to open in other theatres. Yes. When people go to becomingnobody.com, um, there's a list of all the theatres, which is very much more up to date than my brain. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So like in local independent theaters will have showings of it. Exactly. And, and, and actually, the, there's two other things. You can also, if, if it's not in your area, you can get your local cinema to, to, to sort of sort it out. Or there's another thing that when it finishes in all the cinemas, whenever that will be, there's an option when you sign up to host your own screening if it didn't come near you. Mm-hmm. Great. So you can host private screenings too. Yeah. So the Becoming Nobody film, I saw with you when you were at the Vancouver International Film Festival and I was up there with East Forest and we hadn't watched it, he and I, prior. We waited till the screening when we were up there. And I have to say, I thought it was just so, and I know we're hearing this probably from a lot of people, just so moving and so well done in the way that it helped, I felt, explain the spiritual journey from like the somebodyness of programming and indoctrination into culture and then the shift or the transition out of that or what it can be like through the yeah. lens of Ram Dass's journey. Exactly that. That's exactly what it is. It's very, very not a biography. It's much more the transmission. If you want that wonderful, funny, humane flavor and that beautiful power of explanation he has that just switches you to the best version of yourself while you're listening and reminds you how powerful and peaceful you can be while you're watching it kind of it's almost like playing with a, a person who's better at tennis than you it makes you play better so like watching this film and being in his kind of vibe for that hour and 20 minutes hopefully is like a catalyst to switching on that more awake loving kind channel in everyone that's watching it mm-hmm. it i think it certainly does i think it certainly does and it's him as a teacher And you kind of, there's this feeling sense through the film where he is, it kind of shows how he's just like us, like he's a regular guy who began his journey. And then that gives you the sense, at least for me it did, of, oh, it's possible for me too because he did it. Completely. And people are so quick to push away their, they're so quick to be like, they're further along than me. Like there's this linear thing of like giving me power away that I, I can't be really there until I'm as far along as that guy, as if there is a, a sense of along. And that whole linear thing of, of trying to get somewhere and then I can be lovable, then I can be complete, then I can be worthy, mm-hmm. is just as much of a trap in the spiritual thing as it is in any of the corporate sectors of the world. Yeah, I often, when I'm talking to my students, like in particular with meditation, you know, it's more about like the practice and just continuing with the, with the daily practice. And sometimes there's this mindset of like, well, when I read one more book on meditation, then I'll start to meditate. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, it's the same thing with pop stars and stuff. You know, like we have been had our divinity and our magnificence so hammered out of us as children. We were taught that we were being arrogant or greedy or attention-seeking if we enjoyed having the limelight for a moment and stepping into our magnificence and being seen by others. That was kind of frowned on for most people. Mm-hmm. So therefore, that, that muscle, that shadow needs to be worked. So everyone falls in love with Madonna or Coldplay or Leonard Cohen or Bob Dylan or whatever. And it's a way of saying, it's over there, it's not in me, but I need it somewhere in my life. So I'll have it vicariously through that one. And it's the same with spirituality. You don't need to do it vicariously through someone who you think is more evolved than you. You can step into being kind to yourself and drop all the questions and that that sense of peace that is always available to be switched on. It's not a route through lots of therapy. It's not a route through lots of self-care books or retreats. It's always there right now. You can click into it. Mm -hmm. This idea that people have to earn it and have done this much hours 
to earn it is one of the really screwed up things I think in our culture. Would you say that you have had moments of enlightenment? Yeah, I think anytime I'm not tripping out, anytime I'm not with the different DJs of Headfuck FM in my mind and it's actually just the gentle, wise, kind, patient version of me, that's as close as enlightenment as a, as a human ego gets. Mm-hmm. And then we fall out of it and we fall back into it. That's yeah, sort absolutely. of how I've been thinking of it recently. Yeah, every human does. The question is, is how much do you get exasperated with yourself? How much do you mind that that's the imperfect process? That's the problem. It's not that it's imperfect. It's like weather. There will be clouds, there will be sunshine, but how much do you mind and think it's wrong when it's cloud mm-hmm. right when it's sunny? That's, your, mm-hmm. that's the problem. I love that. How much do you mind the imperfect process? Because there is a lot of judgment that's put on the process that it's good or bad or should be this way. I was talking to my students this past weekend too, and I said something like, it's not a design flaw that we forget or that we go through struggles or we feel separated because that's kind of of part of the human process of the act of remembering and to think like, to put the judgment on it that it's bad that we do is a false judgment. Like to see it as like, oh, this is the way that the recipe is made. Exactly. It's not a cookie cutter thing. This is, this is the, the great trap. It's this, it's this of thinking that when I don't feel comfortable, something must be wrong. It must be God's scorecard for me that, when I, that if things are exploding in my life, it must mean I'm out of alignment in some mm-hmm. way. I'm that's not doing totally, it right. That's a belief in a punishing God. It's, it's nonsense. Sometimes it's there to, to, to remind you how incredibly resilient you are or to make you reach out to others and have intimacy that you wouldn't have had if you weren't in the crisis and seven other things. Mm-hmm. So it's not this or that. Um, it's, it's the path of least resistance. That's why I love the Taoists. They're just the water that finds its easiest way down the hill, getting in line with what's going on. So if mm-hmm. your kid has just trashed your house and had a massive um, unscheduled party while you were in America, as my daughter... Is that what just happened for you? It not just happened. That happened a few years ago. <laughs> And they fully turned the house over. And um, I, when it first happened, I was like, oh, God, what is this signal from life that I'm not living well? And then I, and what it turned into with these incredible communications with all the kids who, whose parents brought them around to say sorry because they'd stolen money and trashed the place. And the amount of wonderful conversations that happened with their parents about how just because we've taught them to be so emotionally articulate doesn't mean they don't still have the maturity of 13 and 14-year-olds and that we needed to wake up a bit. And it just became a really, really beautiful series of events that happened after that big drama. It's like a big drama happens. So you're going to alchemize it into all the gold you can possibly get out of it, both in illuminating yourself kindly and patiently, and also the gifts it brings other people, like the parents of these other kids and the kids. Or are you going to say, oh, a terrible thing's happening in my life, and just, just look at it as if it's uncomfortable and it looks chaotic. It must be wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where like the rubber meets the road for your spiritual practice. Cause you can be thinking and doing all of these things and have your solitary moments. And then something that's pretty disruptive that might make you really angry or really frustrated or yeah. lash out occurs. And it's, okay, here's now my opportunity to make the choice. Yeah. And that's what Ramdas would say that the, the, the curriculum of the, the greater life that's beyond your grasping ego, the curriculum that we believe is benevolently coming down the line through all these experiences. It's almost like cast members who are spe- specifically designed just to trigger you in that way. They wouldn't trigger me in that way, but they're sent along to be the perfect kind of sparring partner. If you look at the difficult people in your life as, as Aikido, it's flattering when you get a difficult one. It means that the master has sent you know a, a more badass warrior to come and you know, fight with you. It's like, mm-hmm. you can look at it in many, many ways. And it's how we filter it and framing is a massive um, factor in whether we decide to have a happy life or whether we decide to be committed to suffering. Yeah, I've recently had a surprise opportunity in, in line with this that's made me so angry. Like I haven't been this angry about anything in probably like 13 years. I can remember the last time I was this angry. And watching myself in it and like those feelings of like the old paradigm and the ways that I want to like lash out and like make someone then also feel bad, like seeing that like desire and the energy that it creates inside my body and in my psyche when I do that. And then the like pausing and then like looking for like, okay, how can this be alchemized into something more beautiful? 
Well, that, that one in you that wants to lash out, she thinks she's helping. She's working from old data. When oh, totally. Girl, when you needed a girl like that, you know, but she just needs to be given modern data to say, actually, life is mellower now. You can do what can you do instead that would be useful? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, it's so fascinating for me because I haven't felt like this in so long. Yeah. That, uh... <laughs> I would suggest, because I'm so bossy and no one asked my opinion, but I give it anyway. I Tell me. Go to in the studio with, with East, and he can be your engineering slave. Mm-hmm. And, and allow that, see, there's the taboo around that anger that there must be something wrong with me if I'm feeling this much anger or it's not something that's da da da. But there's a healthy way to put it into a piece of music, which is, you know, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. <laughs> or like, just let that voice that wants to say fuck you and wants to be irresponsibly whatever. Some of the great characters of literature and great punk rock songs and hard techno music has come from some of that. So like, I wouldn't put a cork in it. I would just find the healthy way. To yeah, express. that's that's a great that's a great piece to bring into it too. Is like not the bypassing of the anger. Like really, because I think it's so interesting. One because I haven't felt it in so long, but yeah. two, like yeah, what is the voice of it? And I think too, that's maybe even why it wants to have such a strong voice because it hasn't been able to be present. It's just and- a bit of fun to not be constipated. To at the same time as alchemizing it in the self development channel. Mm-hmm. To also allow that character to play in its own playground of doing the fuck you song. And there's yeah. something really funny also about doing that and letting it speak. If it had the pen, what lyrics would it write? And just letting it have it in a safe, even ridiculous and foolish environment where you're pissing yourself laughing, but you're also really just letting that fire come out. Oh my and gosh. There's yeah. so much fun to be had without making those things taboo. Yes, that's fun. He and I. Christian and I have actually done a little bit of that, like role play, like, okay, well, you just say the things to me instead of to the person, not in this situation, but in other ones. And it's actually incredibly helpful to just be as like horrible and as snarky as possible in a safe way. That's why we have gossip. It's a very healthy valve. (laughs) You say gossip? gossip. Yeah. Gossip, if you're not believing it, but you're just being ridiculous with your friends and just mean. Mm-hmm. Is just purely like you know, it's 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 fun in a very safe environment to like even with the children. Like I've got three daughters, and they delight as kids all love Roald Dahl and 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 literature that has snot and poo and disgustingness in it. They love that stuff. Mm-hmm. Is that if you're feeling really fed up and negative, if, if, if they get to play with this character they like to bring up called Mister Grumpy, and they're <laughs> constantly trying trying and failing to make friends with this horrible man, which they just find hilarious and delightful. And they go, oh, can we ring Mister Grumpy? It's like they ring him like, doo, 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 doo. hello, Mr. Grumpy. And he's like, oh, God, not you again. Please stop calling me. And they're just giggling like ridiculously. You know, they're trying to make cakes. Like, we made you a cake. And it's like, oh, God, you probably destroyed the kitchen. You're poor parents. Stop pretending you can cook. You're a small child. It tastes disgusting. No one wants to eat it. And they just find it so like hilarious. And you have this fun, you know, there's plate. There's so much fun to be had in all these things people are so uptight making taboo. Yes, that's very, very true. You know, that's very true. We have a similar character in our family called Grumpy Pants. Yeah, great. Grumpy Pants comes out. <laughs> Mission to have all that, I think, stops us getting illness and anxiety in other areas of our lives. For sure, because it's coming out instead of getting stuck in. Someone recently said, um, I heard someone was doing cancer research. And I can't give you the source or where this came from because I'm only remembering like the slight sliver of this from the moment, but someone having described cancer cells as cells that had been abandoned and they could no longer connect because they weren't connected. It makes sense, wouldn't it? I mean, with everything else we know and we're learning about uh, addiction being the opposite of connection. Dr. Gabriel Gabor Mate, I'm sure you've seen his stuff. Mm-hmm. Lovely um, addiction expert with the most soulful eyes and beautiful way of expressing. Called Dr. Gabor Mate, talks he's an addiction specialist, and he's, he's all about it's the opposite of connection is addiction. And when they give people an addict something to really connect to and make them feel their aliveness, they don't need to be running to the drug or the shopping or the sex or the. Mm-hmm. <sighs> you know, accumulation in order to numb the pain. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this huge disconnection from the people around them and the world around them, They're unable to like face it and stand in it and be with it. And they, yeah, I mean, I, I, 
we all have those moments. And, and I think it's important, you know, there's another thing that people are a bit stuck on sort of having to do their work alone. I have to do my work on myself. I don't want to put my stuff on other people. When you really get hit by a big wave, I think it's a really good thing to reach out to people, not hide away because you don't want them to see you imperfect, not hide away because you don't want to use up their time because they're busy too. To really have the vulnerability to be seen in it and and reach out. We are meant to be interrelational beings, propping each other up, reminding each other of each other's magnificence and resilience. We're meant to be doing that. And I think there's a bit of a thing going on where not everybody, but many, many people tend to, tend to particularly men, tend to isolate when they get a big wave. Yeah. And I really encourage people to really share it with the people around you because actually everyone is going through so much stuff they're not talking about. You also become like a permission slip to ease up on this whole uptightness around how we look at each other and how we might be seen and to actually have the community of emotional support and empathy and solidarity that's really right under our noses, but we're not believing is there because we're feeling ashamed or we're not wanting to take up people's time. So, you know, people love to be reached out to and much more than you think. You're not taking up people's time. It doesn't have to be done alone on a cushion staring at a white wall. That's very true. It's very true. And it doesn't have to be done either just in a therapeutic setting, like a professional exchange. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious from the movie and having spoken to you, and in the movie, you, in the film, the Ram Dass film, I probably shouldn't call it a movie. Do you not like the word movie? You're more of a film I like guy. it. It makes me feel like I'm in America. <laughs> <laughs> the incredible amounts of New York traffic beeping in the background, it's insane. In the in the film Becoming Nobody, you talked about um, having met Ram Dass in your early twenties. Yes, mid, yeah. In your mid twenties, and so I'm curious, where what was the spark for you as a teenager or in your twenties that started you on this path of spiritual inquiry? Oh, extreme, debilitating panic attacks that were taking over my life. And were they, did they come out of nowhere or was there a catalyst for your panic attacks? Well, I remember the trigger that, that started off that batch, but I definitely had them as a small pretend child. Uh-huh. And actually, even I was very anxious even before like two, I was sort of pulling clumps of hair out of my head. Okay. Uh, so, and I could, I could actually sort of give you a whole suffering tale of things in the womb if we wanted to, but how far does it go back? You know, I once had a really great experience with a channel uh, a Taoist monk called Chung Fu, and you know, these some people believe that some of this stuff is like you've carried it with you from other incarnations. Who knows? Um, but um, I don't know what the most recent was thing that, that set it all off. But uh, but for think, the know, channel, the-, the channel was said that you had perhaps past life things that you were bringing in that when yeah. you were born created your anxiety as a child. What did your anxiety? Do you recall what it was centered around? The like, oh, no-ness, oh, no-ness of the panic attack? Can you say that again? There was such a big hooter going on. Hang on a sec. <laughs> you hear yeah, I hear it. A horn or something. I'm like high up as well. I'm far away from the road. I've had panic attacks too, so that's why I'm curious. All right. Awesome. And, and, yes. I feel like I'm the world expert on panic attacks. Yeah. So there's often, in my experience, like a moment where it's like, oh, no about yeah, something sets it off so yeah. as a child what was the oh no do you remember exile exile and what was that what do you mean by that well a continual feeling of being not what they wanted being the thing that didn't fit uh i couldn't close my mouth in complicit silence with certain things they may be claustrophobic um i couldn't live the shop window keeping up appearances we only talk about these things not those things mm-hmm. existence and I couldn't live the rule book of school and that whole bullying kind of quite violent, no, not quite violent, very violent environment. All of those things together and being mirrored that there was something wrong with you, uh, eventually you feel so exiled from everywhere uh, that it creates, having just been in such connection before you were in kind born you know you were in the mother's womb or you were even in in the great bigness before that if you believe in that to go from that level of connection to the opposite and 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 continually have no backup or or support or or live in a culture where it even thinks of those things Mm -hmm. um yeah that kind of accumulates 
Yeah, it's interesting. Krishna Eastforest, he was just sharing with his own story how when he was a young child, he was having panic attacks too about the system, the game, like, oh, this is it, like the middle America lifestyle and not feeling like he could do it or didn't want to do it. But even as like a kindergartner, like six, seven, like recognizing that yeah. and how that affected him. Yeah. For him, which led for us uh, that that in the journey from that exile to coming home in whatever form to ourselves, to our loved ones, to our belief in ourselves, to our art, that the very things that were making us problem kids back then are the very things now that we're making our art out of. And I'm te- when I'm teaching workshops, I'm teaching the exact same values that I had when I was seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven 10, 11 years old. It's now just, I found a way to say it that everybody gets. Mm-hmm. But I have not changed my position <laughs> since then. <laughs> you can just articulate it now. Yeah. And help others move through it. Yeah, very much. I mean, it's so beautiful and such a privilege. And I don't mean that in a, a wanky American way. It really is such a privilege to be in the presence of transformation. It's so, it's like being at a birth. You know, I get midwives, midwives are so high, you know, because they're just constantly in this twinkly magical realm in the heavenly realms. It's like, it's amazing. So like, it's beautiful to be in the room where people are just putting down years and decades of stuff that they just had just forgotten. It just, they just decided was important and realized so much of our daily trauma and melodrama can be stopped by just taking one little step back and just removing its level of importance, mm-hmm. especially in your relationship, I would say to everybody, as, mm-hmm. as a casualty of making what was going on in the relationship just far too important, far too big a slice of the cake of importance. Like what, for example? Like if they're feeling shitty and things are bumpy in the relationship, life is now feeling a bit shitty. Mm. It doesn't need to be that way. Mm-hmm. It, doesn't, it, it doesn't need to be so that we're only full when the relationship's full. Right. And it's a mad concept. Uh, yeah. As people it's, who are so hooked into each other. But actually, it's okay for have shitty times and still really enjoy the time laughing with your friends on Friday or making a piece of art by yourself or in nature or, you know, like I would always, and, you know, I'm particularly immature in that, that area, would always be so devotional and so looked at, locked into the partner or the mother of the children who I was living with and sharing a bed with every night that it was impossible to not be like that. Um, or I found it impossible to not be like that, where it was just the barometer of the relationship set the barometer for life. Yeah, differentiating the two can be quite hard because we're so interwoven in that way. At yeah, least every movie the- tells you to do it. Mm-hmm. And, every, and every song on the radio. I mean, it's like we, uh, we've got a whole fantastic culture of love-addicted, mental sort of endorphin addiction, uh, dopamine mm-hmm. addiction going on. And so... Yeah. To, but to, it was a really great turning point in my life to to demote certain things. I don't just mean the relationship. I mean other things as well, like status or just to really take a step back and make certain things that seem very important much less important. Yeah. Yeah. I was having, uh, I was in a meditation the other day and I noticed myself in the meditation where I was going into it not feeling that good, let's say. Yeah. And then in the meditation, I'm like, oh, well, I can just invoke the feeling of love and try to cultivate that essence and that feeling. And then I witnessed that. And I thought to myself, even that is creating duality, this like desire to feel good. Like I should just witness and feel that I don't feel good right now and be not attached to that, where I hadn't actually seen that in as deep of a way, because I think the tendency in the programming is more towards how can we get ourselves to feel good? Like you said, the dopamine addiction and all yeah. of that. And, and it was, it was quite a, one of those quite profound, like aha, duh moments, like duh, obviously, which are sometimes the deepest for me, but it was really liberating to think to myself or feel like, oh, I don't have to actually try to feel good. Exactly. Becoming a wine taster of what doesn't feel good is one of the great turning life from black and white into color things one, anyone can do. Suddenly becoming super curious with everything we've been knee-jerk pushing away and trying to escape from and numb is such a different journey. People think of it as such a big phantom into the dark forest of, oh, I couldn't possibly... 
one quarter turn towards that stuff and it just starts raining low-hanging fruit on you. (laughs) (laughs) It's so high yield for little ethical stuff. The the feeling sense behind it was so liberating. It was just like, oh yeah, I don't need to feel good all of the time. Even though I know that intellectually, I finally, it was like a lock, a key in the lock. I just got it. And um, I know that we do that, like you're saying, in our relationships and all areas of our life where we're trying to juggle into the like feel goodness everywhere. And it's not sustainable, nor is it true because we're not allowing for cycles. Yeah. What's, what are the cycles in your life? What are the cycles? It's sort yeah. of like the birth, life, death, rebirth process of it can happen in all areas professional, business, relationship, interpersonal, and um, it's then self too. And what am I, what am I leaning into? What am I, what's, what's being born? What's arising? And then trying to really pay attention to the nurturing aspect of something that's been born. Cause I feel like that can often get skipped over and we're kind of on to the next thing. Oh, what's the next thing that's coming that's birthing versus being with the thing that is fully. Yeah. And then allowing for the transition and change to happen. But yeah. if you're talking more specifically, there's all kinds of things going on too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And some pieces that you just have to let be. They're like they're part of your life, but not sort of like family. Like I'm witnessing things in my own family life and history and dynamic that you're in it because it's your family, but it's also not you and it just is what it is. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's another wonderful thing to let your family off the hook for being exactly where they are. Right. You don't get upset with five-year-olds for not knowing calculus in maths at school. Yes. Yeah. Like last you know, night. We have this expectation that they should get it by now. or They've read enough of those books to really do it. Like we're judging and, and they're just working to full capacity as are you and I. Mm-hmm. Even when we're being an idiot. We're working full capacity now. <laughs> it may seem to other people like we should be doing it better, but you've got to hold up your hands and say, no, 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 I really am this screwed up. Yes. Yeah. Own it. Yeah. It's really fun to just let oneself continually off the hook. Would some people feel or think that that's a sense of like avoidance? No, no, just total, like, have to have any expectation that you could have done it differently. Okay. Treat yourself with any exasperation or cutting. The should-haves. Or disapproval. It's like, that's what I did. And if, mm-hmm. and if you, mm. your four-year-old did that, you'd be like, oh, whoopsie-daisy. Like, I've got, a, one of my kids, like, continually spills things. And I don't think once, I really pledged to myself, and then, not that I particularly felt frustrated because I don't mind wiping something up, but... Like, I never once gave her a hard time about it in her whole life. That's good. That's beautiful. It's just like, okay, oh, whoops. Like, I, I, I do it efficiently, not because I'm a nice guy. Because I, I think, like, making a big deal of it with ourselves, it creates more of a polarity. It creates more of a battle. It creates more shame. It creates more of trying to, an addiction to get away from something that therefore makes it magnetized to come closer. Yeah. It creates all bad things making a fuss. Putting the label on it too, like, well, you're the clumsy one. You're the clumsy one, exactly. Like, I, you know, like, I don't. It's very self fulfilling. You know, they believe that. You know, if you if you go out like that, you'll catch a death of cold. And then, of course, those kids are always got sniveling, dripping noses. Not because they're more less immune. It's because they've got the belief in their brain. Their their god person, their parent, told them you'll get cold, so they go and get a cold because it's just been programmed in. This person's speaking truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's why positive encouragement to children is just like so powerful. Yes, it is. I Are would you... always send my kids to like when they felt ill, of course, give them whatever they need, you know, like if there's like a ginger tea for their tummy or, you know, like they have things, cream or whatever they need, but also really reinforcing to them how wonderful your incredible body while you're sleeping is mending this. You have got such a strong body. And while you go to sleep, all kinds of machinery and enzymes and stuff we, we can't even imagine is going to work to get that virus out of your body and to make you strong again. Well done. <laughs> well done. And, the, and your body's hearing that. Your body's like, yep, I'm on it. Yeah. I'm on it. Yeah, I'm on it. 
You don't need that. And it's the same with your mouth. You know, people plan a speech at a wedding or whatever, but the truth is your mouth knows how to speak from your heart. If you would just dare, if you would just let it. <laughs> One of the bodily functions, it knows how to work. Like your tummy knows how to work. You don't have to, when you're eating, go, carrots coming down. You know, you're <laughs> Your tummy, you trust your tummy knows how to do that. And, and we could trust our mouths, know how to share from our hearts. If we're just like connect to the heart in us that wants to connect to the other, the mouth knows perfectly well what to do. I can hear you sharing that when you're leading groups. And yeah, you, I'm a big believer in that. Yeah. And people, you, we play a TED talk game where you don't find out what you're, you're going to give a talk as a complete authority with passion uh, about your life's work, but you don't find what it is until you open the piece of paper and start speaking immediately. <laughs> dun 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 brilliant so fun yeah I really love that I'm curious again with your first time with Ram Das was when in the movie or in the film when you spoke about meeting him in your 20s was that the first time that you had met him yeah I loved his tapes earlier in, in my 20s and, and then I couldn't believe I saw advertised somewhere that he was actually coming to England to do a 10-day retreat in some boarding school that they rent during the holidays and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I immediately like got a ticket. You know, I was like, I'm not missing that. And uh, it was the first um, sleepover retreat type thing I'd ever been to. Oh, wow. And did you go by yourself or with... Yeah, I went by yeah. myself. I was 25. My girlfriend was pregnant. I just left one band. And I was kind of having just left the band I was in for five years, which was the beginning of the whole of the passion of my creativity and, and music of my life from 20 to 25. It was all I did, really, was being this band. And um, I just left that and my girlfriend was pregnant and I was getting deeper into, you know, a deeper just part of myself and then there, there he was doing his thing and it was very very moving i can't remember very much of it now it's a long bloody time ago but i remember the feeling yeah and in the film you say that you wanted him to tell you that you were a good son yes and you could argue that then a few years later when we did the first one giant leap movie going all around the world talking to tom robbins kurt vonnegut dennis hopper ram das etc etc that i was still looking for the elder males that had inspired me to tell me that I was a good son. And I'm guessing that's because you didn't receive that kind of approval when you were a child? No, you know, I was just telling someone else today, it's funny. I mean, I didn't on the whole, no. Okay. But out of all the people that I didn't not get it from or whatever, and who fucking cares? But really, um, one thing I do think is that, like, and felt safe in is that as much as my dad was a bit of a lunatic, he really did like having me around. Out of he all did. the people that were telling me a problem kid, he was never one of them. Right. He was like, you'll either be a millionaire or in prison by the time you're 21. With a sort of twinkle of pride. Mm-hmm. So where was that coming from? What did that mean to you to feel like you were being told you were a good son? I don't know. I just, I just sort of, I just, a big part of me, I think, just felt on the outside of the big boys table or the, the welcome of the, the, of the, of the people who know whether you're good or not. Mm-hmm. I never really particularly trusted my dad's view on whether I was good or not. <laughs> 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 because, you know, he was a uniquely... He- I didn't think either of my parents from a very young age were, were the last word on, on what was right and wrong or valuable or not valuable. Mm-hmm. So from somebody that you admired and looked up to, Ram Dass, yeah. to say... You're doing it. I yeah, see you. Yeah, yes. It's a positive mirroring from someone I trusted. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Yeah. And also there's just the delight of when I come across something amazing, I want to showcase it. Like One Giant Leap was one of the incredible vocals of the master and mistress singers of the world and master players of the world and and great wisdom keepers and a lot of it is also like it's moved you so much whatever that is you want to put it in a setting where it's unmissable to as many people as possible how wonderful that is mm-hmm. and that's I realize a huge part of my life and this Ramdas film is really like me wanting as many people as possible to get the loving incredible hilarious hit from him that I've got would you say that he's your main teacher 
His model is. So, yeah. His model of discourse. His model of lighten up. Yeah. With your curriculum, try and face it with a bit of grace and, and a smile. Be in service as much as possible as a good hint. Little or not from worthiness. Keep sacrificing the thing you're trading off. You know, keep throwing on the fire the thing that you think is covering you from everyone knowing you're a lunatic. So if you're particularly beautiful, wear a week of just like terrible makeup and make people think you've totally lost it. You know, like whatever is making people think you're normal, keep sacrificing it. That's my little addition. <laughs> to the Ramdas teachings. Yeah, just keep, it's just the extension of that. It's keep playing with all those roles. Don't just be, oh, that's a role, I shall transcend it. Uh-huh. Play with the role so that it can, it's your, every time you're tying a bell to its ankle so it can't insidiously slip in next time. Make theater out of it, make laughter out of it, make intimacy out of it with deep conversations or incredible comedy or incredible music. Use it, alchemize it. Not because you should, but because it's just the most fun way to be a human. Right. Active engagement with it, playfulness. It's so much fun when you look at it from the different filter. So much juice, like mean people. Mean people can be so fun when they accidentally walk into your theater and you're feeling fruity that day. It's true. You know, there's fun to be had, even with a racist. If, 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 the, if the great casting agency puts a racist in your path, you know, if you're feeling silly, you can be like more racist than them and see where they stop. <laughs> and freak them out. Not by really, truly being racist. Right, just amplifying. Just be whatever, whatever, be in the little holodeck theater they've created, walk into it and be the biggest pantomime villain there. It's, if you feel free in the world, you can be very silly in public and engage people on the train. You know, like there's a lot of fun to be had without invading everyone. But Do you have theater training? No. You don't? Only, well, I, I've trained... I've accidentally got theatre training just because I, I got this wonderful job a few years ago, which is my main client actually in the world, or has been in the last two, three years, which is I train the biggest charity in the world for training hospital clowns for ill and dying children and people in hospital. You train the hospital clowns? Yeah, in my stuff, in, in my extreme self-awareness and playing with these parts of yourselves. Bring, they are the thing that is the most authentic thing in the room, the clown. They're expressing the thing that no one else will. Mm-hmm. So when you mix that with our kind of shadow play work, they're made for each other. Cool. That's really cool. I'm and curious. so conscious and so intimate with each other that they really can be there when the child looks at them and snarls, I don't like you. Which for the child is a wonderful thing. Who's dying of leukemia. It's like it took a stand but for the clown, if it doesn't know that that's a wonderful part of the process that it just facilitated, it could take that with it for life. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So they really need to know what they're doing there. <laughs> like Randas talks about in the film, he just sits there in front of the dying woman, allowing it to be with everything that comes up in him, mm-hmm. rather than being professional warmth and, you know, and like skipping it. He goes and like the Tibetan Buddhists meditate on a bloated corpse or a skeleton. Mm-hmm. The absolute witness. Yeah, so that's what the clown's invitation is. And it so, could be that for the kid in a place that, where everyone else is being professional warmth and can't handle it. That's, that's great. Yeah. So, so that's my training is that by doing that with them, they've kind of trained me. Mm-hmm. You're all doing it together. You seem like a man who's very broad in in um, skills and different genius sets and capabilities and capacities. And you've you've brought many of them together through like your workshops and your teachings and then your films too. But it takes a lot. I I'm feeling like a lot of um, courage to actually do that, to do that weaving. Where does that come from for you? Like I can do this. I often think that it's like the thing as a child is like, I failed so many times. I got told no so many times and told to get out the room so many times. I'm kind of bulletproof. Nothing could be like like that now. Just Woody Allen saying, no, I don't want to give you an interview doesn't hurt. Right. And I really believe people get in touch with that. No, it's meaningless when people say no. Just go and just keep asking and asking and asking. There'll be enough yeses. There's a whole banquet of yeses if you don't mind the no's. What, was one, of, what on. was one of your first big ones? Was that the One Giant Leap film? 
projects, you mean? Mm-hmm. The first yeah. project that was huge that I was like a quarter of or a small part of was this group called Faithless in the 90s, which was a super successful electro band. And I didn't have much to do with the electro side of it at all. I was the sort of ballad singer in the group because <laughs> the, the producer of the whole thing loved having a mixture of hip hop and songs and house all on that, on that album. And that became immense in, in Europe from sort of 96 to 2000 and beyond. But the thing that was just sort of more mine than mine and Duncan's, which was more an expression of what I felt passionate and passionate about in the world, was One Giant Leap, where it went all around the world, 50 countries worth of most incredible musicians and singers and wisdom keepers and people in prison, all talking about God, sex, death, money, shadow, and making overdubbing incredible music performances on this, our backing tracks. Um, so the person would put on the headphones and they'd hear our track and the drummers we just recorded last month in Ghana. Now the Chinese one-string player can hear Alanis Morissette. You know, like everybody can hear each other. It's, it was just an amazing, an amazing opportunity as an artist to basically, when you come up with the idea, basically it's like you can go anywhere in the world you want, do anything musical or otherwise with anyone you like, come back and edit it into anything you want. It was like the perfect carte blanche. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then you made the film with it too. That exactly. shows that well, journey. When we got the album signed by Chris Blackwell, who was Island Records and at the time Palm Pictures, he was the guy that signed Bob Marley and U2, amazing guy from white Jamaican guy. He, um, he said, well, actually, we're a film company. There's this new thing called DVD now. And so you have to, we love your videos for Faithless. So you've now got to make a film that goes with this idea. And that's what we did. We said, well, that's when the idea of bringing in interviews and stuff, not just music, came in. Till then, it was just a music project of just all the different diversity of music playing together. When they said they wanted a film, we were like, mm, it's not so interesting just us going around the world plugging in instruments. How about we interview everyone from Kurt Vonnegut to Noam Chomsky to, to Ram Dass to Marianne Williamson, Gabrielle Roth, with the, you know, just all wonderful people, the people in the street, people in prison, um, and mix together all this diversity on the surface that will express underneath all this unity. And they were like, great, don't do that. So amazing. I have to say, I went onto your website and I saw your, um, like a little blurb from Noam Chomsky and Tom Robbins. And I said out loud, he's got a blurb from Noam Chomsky and Tom Robbins. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't ask, you don't get, that's what I'm saying. Noam Chomsky doesn't, doesn't endorse anyone because he's too powerful, basically. If I was someone political, he wouldn't in a million years endorse me. But because I'm just like this guy and we happened to get on well and his secretary was nice and da 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 And I said, you know what? It really helped me to have a quote. They gave me one. And it's like, you know, you, don't, you just ask. And many, many will say no, but the ones that say yes are just like, great. Yeah, I I love that because I don't think I'd ever seen a, an endorsement from Noam Chomsky. I know, definitely so caught funny. my eye. It's so funny, so funny. Would Would you say in this whole journey, you are like you said, very used to the nose, and they don't bother you mm-hmm. on the one hand, and on the other hand, because of the experiences of the yeses that you've been you've gotten in so many different ways through lots of failures and nos, I'm sure that your internal sense of I am enough and this is working has grown? Definitely, millionfold. But, of course, it still has a thorn. It still has an Achilles heel. You know, it still has a place where it's not full but can come back. You know? What do you think about the piece that doesn't feel full? I'm its daddy. It's for me to just love it and stroke it and reassure it and, and give it a cuddle when it gets overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And there is alongside the me that, that is going from, you know, hotel to hotel to country to workshop to project, you know, like there's petrol in the car, there's food in the fridge, the kids are fed, you know, like that kind of superhero flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a very overwhelmed child or children that come along. My, I've, we, I'm driving a bus with, the, with my own personal cast of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in the back. And with the wrong factors, any one of them can leap up and grab the wheel. You know, I've got to be their daddy and, and not reject them, not judge them, not try and do healing sessions so they're gone from my life. I've got to just really accept them and look after their legitimate needs underneath them as much as I can. Have you noticed over the years that you've been on this path 
that some of them have quieted down or calmed down, or are they all just as kind of present as they always have? Your perspective of them has just shifted. They're massively calmed down, and they could massively jump in and make, put you, make you feel like you're back to square one at any moment. It's both. It's both. They're, they're totally calmed down, but give the wrong factors. I, I, none of them, you give them the wrong factors, any one of them could jump forward. Mm-hmm. And you kind of talked about in the Becoming Nobody film, those different kind of personas that you have. You presented those to Ram Dass and he was, I think his response, it didn't seem like kind of the one that you're looking for or getting at. It was more just like... Well, my thing is like, what we're talking now about is the tools of, of being a human and, and enjoying this life better. And he's not really on that realm now. He's on the realm of just tuning into the soul that's behind it all. And he, that's really his only interest right now. Yeah. But he's like, that's Jamie, you're just talking about different kinds of thoughts, which is on, on the level of only looking at soul is totally true. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still in the fun of the more like, wow, what, what, what art and fun and intimacy can we make with all this stuff rather than just tune into the other channel where it's not going on? Yeah. That's great. That's a good description. I like the human messy experience. I'm not saying he doesn't. He's just pushing 90 now. It's just not so interesting. It's not that part of life, you know? It's not buzzy for him. He's in a totally different phase. Yeah, yeah. you're sort of in the thick project. of it. <laughs> <laughs> not another movie. No. You know, I'm like, oh, how could we do this and heal the male and female wound on this whole planet? That would be amazing. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> next on my list. Is that really next on your list? Yeah, the Adam and Eve project, Adam and Eve movie, which could be one giant leap three or not. It doesn't. I'm not sure how it will unfold, but the film that when you come out of it, everyone looks at the opposite sex and goes, that's enough. We are going to heal the past once and for all, step into our full potential together. Ooh, gosh, that gives me chills to think about. Yeah. Really powerful. So much um, there. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, there's the way that the trans things that are going on are going to be an amazing metaphor for that. And and I'm not quite sure because some people are already like, oh, you're so heteronormal and binary. Do <laughs> um, <so laughs> so you? Of, yeah. Who kind of almost hate the idea. But there is a big male-female wound. And, and whether you, however it expresses itself, whether it be through, is it healing through some of the trans people and non-binary? Yes, probably. But it's not the only way. There's still a lot of virtually heteronormal men and women that need to, to get busy too. Absolutely. Yeah. And not having the shame around that either that, oh, I'm just heteronormal. I know I have a teenager. I don't know how it affects your your children, but this whole different paradigm now of identification that they're processing like in the moment. And yeah, sometimes it feels like there's pressure for them to be different than just normal. Yeah. Or even to totally play with normal. That's the other thing. As a child, I was really bored with getting the right answer. I was kind of partly was doing it on purpose. That it was a bit more interesting to say the wrong answer than the right answer. Once I decided these very uptight conservative people in the schools and stuff were like very rigidly like get the answer, bing, good boy, get the answer, bing, good boy. That becomes, you know, you get much more insightful response when you get the wrong answer mm-hmm. and I've got to learn to even I upset two people I upset someone twice this week by not being boundary or boundary or sensitive enough with that actually and just saying the Tourette's most stupid and inappropriate thing twice um, and uh, I have to be careful with that but I, I have a real free reign with saying the wrong thing and seeing what happens yeah that's your inner trickster I know, but it can. There's a shadow to it where it can be in it, where it can be almost not bullying, but it can be insensitive, like pushing everyone else through an experience they didn't necessarily consensually say they wanted. Yeah, I've had to go through that same process too, where my mind can think of the most horrible thing and think it's really hysterical and funny. Yeah, I've had to learn. I upset someone yesterday doing that. Not to say that that was a growth point of like, oh, don't yeah. say it. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting that now a bit more. Hmm. I saw on your list of workshops you have one that's coming up that's something like how to mo- have the best sex ever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, we're all curious about that, right? Well, exactly. And you know what? 
the content of the workshop is exactly the same as all my other workshops because if you do become this deeper listener and turn on your yin to this level of sensitivity and be so internal that you're feeling everything you want and you need and you're so tuned into the other person you're with and every smell and every sound and every need and every curve, you will have the best sex ever. You will. So it's exactly, all I teach is switching on the yin, curiosity, wine taster of what's really going on and responding to that from a wise, kind place. That's all I teach anyway. It was just a fun idea to see how many tickets we'd sell if we put sex in the title. Because I did it basically last year in Bristol, I was giving a talk and they said, what title? And I said, the best sex ever, just as a joke. (laughs) And that's actually what they called it. And then they, instead of selling out this 50 seat room, which is what they wanted to do, they had to move it to a 180 seat place because it was so oversold. Wow. It was just so ridiculous. And I just came on. The first thing I said was, this is what happens when you put sex in the title of your workshop. (laughs) <laughs> it's great marketing it's so silly so I just because it was Amsterdam and the girl I'm actually teaching with and we haven't even worked out exactly what we're going to do yet but the girl I'm teaching with is a big permission goddess kink tantric red day pink day play party lunatic um, so she will bring enough of that kind of um, stuff for me to actually the kind of thing I'm going to do in that workshop, I think, is actually going to be more like an NVC exercise. We have this game I do on, on my intimacy workshop where we separate the men and women, and the men go off and they think of three things they want women to know that they want from women. And the women go off and come up with three things they want the men to know that they want from men. And they then come back and sit opposite each other, which alone after that process feels very fucking juicy. And then they ask the women that start, let's say, and they say to the men, for example, we want you to know that we want more touch that doesn't necessarily have to lead to sex. And they just let that hang. And then they call upon the different men to repeat back to them what they think they heard, what they're being asked. And in that conversation of them making sure all the men understand what's being asked, forgetting about anyone saying yes or no, so much healing happens. It's incredible with the clarities and the men ask questions, do you mean this or that? And just by asking to find out what you mean when you're telling me what you need is the process. And then they swap sides and the men say to the women, we want your respectful and loving challenge as a teammate when you see us being less than our potential. And all the women start weeping because they can't believe the men really want that. Mm. And it's been so diverted down complaint and criticism and love withhold if you're not how I want that it's become a mess. Mm-hmm. and then they ask the women what do you hear when I ask you that what do you think I'm asking you for and then they start start saying you know no, not complaining at you but but upholding you for the best of you and the best of us and people are just weeping it's like just this little game is the sexiest thing I know how to bring into a room mm, beautiful yeah the authenticity and the speaking and witnessing and sharing yeah are you leading lots of workshops now you know, uh, I've been doing millions for like the last nine years. I've done like three to five a month, pretty much without stopping. And uh, so that just kind of carries on inside companies or one-on-one with people or in rooms. Mm-hmm. And we also have a thing online called academyofthesacredfool.com, which is the online version of what I do. It's like 40 days and 40 nights in the maze of the sacred fool. And it's like 40 different videos and things to do and 80 audios. So it's two little meditations a day or ideas to plant in your head. (laughs) And you get a little spirit animal. You choose a wolf, a monkey, an owl, or a lion to walk with you. And they send you a little message every day too. Can someone join that at any time? Yeah, we just made it evergreen, actually, I'm told. We're not doing a big launch because Lisa, my partner in it, is launching other things. She just hasn't got the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> but eventually we'll probably do another launch. Uh, but just now people are beginning to realize it's evergreen. They, we used to just do it only as a community, and now it's become anyone can do it in the maze. The Academy sorry, of the Sacred Fool. Dot com, yeah. It's dot com. Fantastic. And what about music? Are you making music currently? Yeah, no, um, mixing the movie was very musical because we, as musicians, we make our films as a musician. We don't, we make it as a piece of sound and then put pictures on. That's how I do it anyway. Um, so that was a very musical thing. It was using a lot of the music we'd composed in the last few years for internal music dissolving and the happening projects, which are some of my lesser known, more instrumental, beautiful projects. 
master musicians in love with their instruments playing incredibly. Um, and it is time for another happening. The problem is, is that the last happening album, which are sort of film scores for movies that don't exist, the last one, we haven't mixed the fourth one yet. And I can't, for some reason, I don't know whether it's some parental thing, I can't bring myself to to set up the next session, the next album recording until I've mixed the last one. It doesn't feel right. Mm, you want to finish it. Yeah. I'm moving on. It's funny, the last track of the Round Us, the last eight minutes of the movie is one of the tracks from that unmixed album. It sounds incredible. It's like the best moment in the movie is the last eight minutes when he gives this encouraging rallying call to everyone to look at death as an adventure. It was a beautiful track. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great way to end the film too. Yeah, it's so good. That was Duncan from One Giant Lee who edited that bit. Mm. He saved the ending. He just, you know, he just... He did a whole cut, and, and the last 10 minutes of his cut is the last 10 minutes of the film. Beautiful. Totally yeah. nailed. You have to be so proud of the film. I hope that you are anyways. It's funny, you know what? I am, and it's, I am as a piece of thing that will last forever for anyone to switch themselves on with or give themselves some peace of mind with or some help around a bereavement with. I feel delighted. Yeah. And in the becoming somebody idea of... I want to reach beyond the converts. I want to switch on all the muggles. Mm-hmm. I'm not satisfied. You're not enough muggles have seen it yet? No. Well, you're not just really. getting started. Well, maybe. I don't know. It's not up to me anymore. And that's annoying. <laughs> that's annoying. <laughs> Do you turn it over to, say, Maharaji? Do you have an essence like that? Or is it just... No, I'm not even Maharaji. I just know from 30 years experience on this planet that anytime you do anything just on the material plane, even if you've got a budget like Dido, it does, you're still rolling a hundred-sided dice that anyone will like it, that on the day they heard it, they sent it to their friend and they liked it, that this person was in the right mood, they decided to write about it. The amount of chaotic connections that have to happen for anything to be, in inverted commas, successful or go beyond performing as expected, for something to go beyond performing as expected so much chaos that you have no control over, not in your sphere of influence, has to happen. I just gave up that part years ago. No Maharaji needed, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> just common sense. Yeah. On the quant- happens, I still keep doing it because when one happens, like Faithless, you, you couldn't imagine how big it became out of such a side projecty idea. And One Giant Leap, even in its own way, you know, like it was just a little, you know, when we did One Giant Leap, it was combining the two elements of professional suicide, which was world, world music and spirituality. You couldn't be more uncool than we were. Um, <laughs> you know. Um, but somehow it, it had this big life bigger than itself. So you just keep doing what feels exciting. And just sometimes one of them just kind of just goes somewhere. Well, I'm glad that you're out there doing the work that you're doing. It makes me feel, um, it gives me a sense of peace knowing that Jamie's out there leading workshops and being creative and trusting and putting, putting out content well, in all the ways you. that you do. You're always welcome. You're yeah. always welcome. I've had quite a few requests on this tour to do some in America, so we could maybe do one in Vancouver or near where you guys are. Well, I'm out here in Boise, Idaho, but I would, you know, a good spot yeah, for you would be nice. somewhere like Esalen. I'm surprised that you haven't been there yet. Well, because I haven't done America at all. I just like, in the same way as you guys in America partly think that America is everything. It's like a planet and then there's all these other places, but there's mainly America. It's kind of how Americans think. Yep. When you're not in America, you think of everywhere else as mainly the place and America is this other weird place. (laughs) We don't look at America as the center of things. We look at America as this sort of weird adolescent, dysfunctional little brother who sometimes somehow got keys to the Ferrari. And That's, it's just fucking around making a mess and there's no controlling it. But what <laughs> you do, it's too big to, to control, but it's fucking up the resources and the environment for everyone all over the place, as well as making money out of wars in places that most people in America haven't heard of. Yeah. Uh, so we don't look at America as this wonderful central thing. We look at it as this very dangerous younger brother that got the keys to the Ferrari and, and, and one doesn't know really how to control that's an accurate description, I would say. That's certainly how it feels. And from the inside of it, it's just the feeling of like an invisible prison that you can't quite yeah. see at all. And you don't so even don't know it's there. Of, I don't think of Esalen as somewhere I have 
America is like a thing that if you're going to do it, then it would include Esalen and Omega and all the other places you would, you would make a plan and kind of go and do that. But until you kind of turned the corner and went, oh, I want to go to America and do lots of my workshopy stuff, Esalen doesn't even figure in my brain. Yeah. And it just comes to me because I'm reading this. Yeah. I conceived a child there once though, which was good. You can see the what? My second daughter was conceived there. Oh, at Esalen. Yeah. So you were there. Oh, I've been there not as I've been there just because I was passing through and we wanted mm. to sit in the pools and look out to sea. And, and bring a child into the world. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we didn't know at the time that's what we were doing, but it was great that we did. Well, I look forward to our paths crossing again. Yes. And please give the man hunk a huge hug. I will for sure. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we sign off? If to everyone listening, I mean if if you if you think I have anything to say. Just remember the one thing that if any time you're treating yourself with exasperation or cutting or like disappointment, it means you're asleep. You may appear to be awake, but if you find yourself treating yourself in any of those ways, you are definitely, definitely, definitely asleep. Mm, Thank you for that reminder. Because it appears that justified at the time, but it's just not. You're asleep. Unless you're being kind and loving and patient, you're asleep. Perfect. 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 Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Jamie. Till next time. Thanks for having me. It's been lovely to chat. Send me the link when it becomes a link and I'll share with my disciples. I will for sure. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you.